another week, another exciting episode of Tarzan of the Apes. Afraid I'm gonna leave you guys on another bit of a cliffhanger, but uh, yeah, that's that's why you keep coming back, right? Speaking of coming back, really appreciate you guys sharing the word about the podcast, just telling people that you know about another world audiobooks. Like I said, this is a labor of love, just doing it because I love doing it, but just having the your help and spreading the word means so much and helps so much. All right, so now without further ado, let's get into the episode. Jump to seventeen, burials. It was now quite light. The party, none of whom had eaten or slept since the previous morning, began to bestir themselves to prepare food. The mutineers of the Arrow had landed a small supply of dried meats, canned soups and vegetables, crackers, flour, tea, and coffee for the five they had marooned, and they were hurriedly drawing up to satisfy the cravings of long-famished appetites. The next task was to make the cabin habitable, and to this end it was decided at once to remove the gruesome relics of the tragedy which had taken place there on some bygone day. Professor Porter and Mr. Philander were deeply interested in examining the skeletons. The two larger, they stated, had belonged to a male and female of the human race. The smaller skeleton was giving but passing attention, as its location in the crib left no doubt as to its having been the infant offspring of this unhappy couple. As they were preparing the skeleton of the man for burial, Clayton discovered a massive ring which had evidently encircled the man's finger at the time of death, for one of the slender bones of the hand still lay within the golden bauble. Picking it up to examine it, Clayton gave a cry of astonishment, for the ring bore the crest of the House of Greystoke. At the same time, Jane discovered the book in the cupboard, and on opening the flyleaf of one of them, saw the name John Clayton, London. In the second book, which she hurriedly examined, was the single name Greystoke. "'Why, Mr. Clayton!' she cried. "'What does this mean? Here are the names of some of your own people in these books.' "'And here?' He replied gravely, "'Is the great ring of the house of Greystoke, in which has been lost since my uncle, John Clayton, the former Lord Greystoke, disappeared, presumably lost at sea.' "'But how do you account for these things being here, in this savage African jungle?' exclaimed the girl. "'There is but one way to account for it, Miss Porter,' said Clayton. The late Lord Greystoke was not drowned. He died here, in this cabin, and this poor thing upon the floor is all that is mortal of him. "'Then this must have been Lady Greystoke,' said Jane reverently, indicating the poor mass of bones upon the bed. "'The beautiful Lady Alice,' replied Clayton, "'of whose many virtues and remarkable personal charms I have often heard my mother and father speak. Poor woman,' he murmured sadly." With deep reverence and solemnity, the bodies of the late Lord and Lady Greystoke were buried beside the little African cabin, and between them was placed the tiny skeleton of the baby of Kayla, the ape. As Mr. Philander was placing the frail bones of the infant in a bit of sailcloth, he examined the skull minutely. Then he called Professor Porter to his side, and the two argued in low tones for several minutes. "'Most remarkable! Most remarkable!' said Professor Porter. "'Bless me,' said Mr. Philander. "'We must acquaint Mr. Clayton with our discovery at once.' "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut,' remonstrated Professor Archimedes Q. Porter. "'Let the dead past bury its dead.' And so the white-haired old man repeated the burial service over this strange grave, while his four companions stood with bowed and uncovered heads about him. From the trees— Tarzan of the apes watched the solemn ceremony, but most of all, 
he watched the sweet face and graceful figure of Jane Porter. In his savage, untutored breast, new emotions were stirring. He could not fathom them. He wondered why he felt so great an interest in these people, why he had gone to such pains to save the three men. But he did not wonder why he had torn Sabor from the tender flesh of the strange girl. Surely the men were stupid and ridiculous and cowardly. Even Manu the monkey was more intelligent than they. If these were creatures of his own kind, he was doubtful if his past pride and blood was warranted. But the girl, ah, there was a different matter. He did not reason here. He knew that she was created to be protected, and that he was created to protect her. He wondered why they had dug a great hole in the ground merely to bury dry bones. Surely there was no sense in that. No one wanted to steal dry bones. Had there been meat upon them, he could have understood, for thus alone might one keep his meat from Dango, the hyena, and other robbers of the jungle. When the grave had been filled with earth, the little party turned back toward the cabin, and Esmeralda, still weeping copiously for the two she had never heard of before today, and who had been dead twenty years, chanced a glance toward the harbor. Instantly, her tears ceased. "'Look at them low-down white trash out there!' she shrilled, pointing toward the arrow. "'They all's a-desecrating us right here on this perverted island!' And sure enough, the arrow was being worked toward the open sea, slowly through the harbor's entrance. "'They promised to leave us firearms and ammunition,' said Clayton. "'The merciless beasts!' "'It is the work of the fellow they call Snipes, I'm sure,' said Jane." King was a scoundrel, but he had a little sense of humanity. If they had not killed him, I know he would have seen that we were properly provided for before they left us to our fate. "'I regret that they did not visit us before sailing,' said Professor Porter. "'I had proposed requesting them to leave the treasure with us, as I shall be a ruined man if that is lost.' Jane looked at her father sadly. "'Never mind, dear,' she said. It wouldn't have done us any good, because it is solely for the treasure that they killed their officers and landed us upon this awful shore. Tut-tut, child, tut-tut, replied Professor Porter. You are a good child, but inexperienced in practical matters. And Professor Porter turned and walked slowly away toward the jungle, his hands clasped beneath his long white coattails and his eyes bent upon the ground. His daughter watched him with a pathetic smile upon her lips, and then turning to Mr. Philander, she whispered, "'Please don't let him wander off again like he did yesterday. We depend upon you, you know, to keep a close watch upon him.' "'He has been more difficult to handle each day,' replied Mr. Philander, with a sigh and a shake of his head. "'I presume he is now off to report to the directors of the zoo that one of their lions was at large last night. Oh, Miss Jane, you don't know what I have to contend with.' "'Yes, I do, Mr. Philander, but while we all love him, you alone are best fitted to manage him, for regardless of what he may say to you, he respects your great learning, and therefore has immense confidence in your judgment. The poor dear cannot differentiate between erudition and wisdom.' Mr. Philander, with a mildly puzzled expression on his face, turned to pursue Professor Porter, and in his mind he was revolving the question of whether he should feel complimented or aggrieved at Miss Porter's rather backhanded compliment.' Tarzan had seen the consternation depicted upon the faces of the little group as they witnessed the departure of the arrow. So, as the ship was a wonderful novelty to him in addition, he determined to hasten out to the point of land at the north of the harbour's mouth and obtain a nearer view of the boat, as well as to learn, if possible, the direction of its flight. 
Swinging through the trees with great speed, he reached the point only a moment after the ship had passed out of the harbour, so that he obtained an excellent view of the wonders of this strange floating house. There were some twenty men running hither and thither about the deck, poling and hauling on ropes. A light land breeze was blowing, and the ship had been worked through the harbour's mouth under scant sail, but now that they had cleared the point, every available shred of canvas was being spread that she might stand out to sea as handily as possible. Tarzan watched the graceful movements of the ship in rapt admiration, and longed to be aboard her. Presently, his keen eyes caught the faintest suspicion of smoke on the far northern horizon, and he wondered over the cause of such a thing out on the great water. About the same time, the lookout on the arrow must have discerned it, for in a few moments Tarzan saw the sail being shifted and shortened. The ship came about, and presently he knew that she was beating back towards land. A man at the bow was constantly heaving into the sea a rope, to the end of which a small object was fastened. Tarzan wondered what the purpose of this action might be. At last, the ship came up directly into the wind. The anchor was lowered. Down came the sails. There was great scurrying about the deck. A boat was lowered, and in it a great chest was placed. Then a dozen sailors bent to the oars and pulled rapidly toward the point where Tarzan crouched in the branches of a tree. In the stern of the boat, as it drew nearer, Tarzan saw the rat-faced man. It was but a few minutes later that the boat touched the beach. The men jumped out and lifted the great chest to the sand. They were on the north side of the point, so that their presence was concealed from those of the cabin. The men argued angrily for a moment. Then the rat-faced one, with several companions, ascended the low bluff on which stood the tree that concealed Tarzan. They looked about for several minutes. "'It was a good place.' said the rat-faced sailor, indicating a spot beneath Tarzan's tree. "'It's as good as any,' replied one of his companions. "'If they catch us with the treasure aboard, it will be all confiscated away. We might as well bury it here, on the chance that some of us will escape the gallows to come back and enjoy it later.' The rat-faced one now called the men who had remained at the boat, and they came slowly up the bank carrying picks and shovels. "'Hurry up!' cried Snipes. "'Stow it!' retorted one of the men in a surly tone. "'You're no admiral, you damned shrimp!' "'I'm captain here, though. I'll have you to understand, you swab!' shrieked Snipes, with a volley of frightful oaths. "'Steady, boys,' cautioned one of the men who had not spoken before. "'It ain't going to get us nothing by fighting amongst ourselves.' "'Right enough,' replied the sailor who had resented Snipes' autocratic tones. "'But it ain't going to get nobody nothing to put on airs in this blooming company, neither.' "'You fellas dig here,' said Snipes, indicating a spot beneath the tree. "'And while you're digging, Peter can be a-making a map of the location so we can find it again. "'You, Tom, and Bill, take a couple more down and fetch up the chest.' "'What are you going to do?' asked he of the previous altercation. "'Just boss?' "'Get busy here,' growled Snipes. You didn't think your cabin was going to dig with a shovel, did you? The men all looked up angrily. None of them liked Snipes, and this disagreeable show of authority since he had murdered King, the real head and ringleader of the mutineers, had only added fuel to the flames of their hatred. Do you mean to say that you don't intend to take a shovel and lend a hand with this work? Your shoulders not hurt so all fire bad as that, said Tarrant, the sailor who had spoken before. "'Not by a damn sight,' replied Snipes, fingering the butt of his revolver nervously. "'Then, by God,' replied Tarrant, "'if you won't take a shovel, you'll take a pickaxe.' 
With the words, he raised the pick above his head, and with a mighty blow, he buried the point in Snipe's brain. For a moment, the men stood silently looking at the results of their fellow's grim humour. Then one of them spoke. "'Serve the skunk jolly well right,' he said. One of the others commenced to ply his pick to the ground. The soil was soft, and he threw aside the pick and grasped the shovel. Then the others joined him. There was no further comment on the killing, but the men worked in a better frame of mind than they had since Snipes had assumed command. When they had a trench of ample size to bury the chest, Terence suggested that they enlarge it and enter Snipes' body on top of the chest. "'It might help fools any as it been to be digging thereabouts,' he explained. The others saw the cunning of the suggestion, and so the trench was lengthened to accommodate the corpse, and in the centre of a deeper hole was excavated for the box, which was first wrapped in sailcloth and then lowered to its place, which brought its top about a foot below the bottom of the grave. Earth was shoveled in and tamped down about the chest, until the bottom of the grave showed level and uniform. Two of the men rolled the rat-faced corpse unceremoniously into the grave, after first stripping it of its weapons and various other articles which the several members of the party coveted for their own. Then they filled the grave with earth and tramped upon it until it would hold no more. The balance of the loose earth was ploughed far and wide, and a mass of dead undergrowth spread in as natural a manner as possible over the new-made grave to obliterate all signs of the ground having been disturbed. Their work done, the sailors turned to the small boat and pulled off rapidly toward the arrow. The breeze had increased considerably, and as the smoke upon the horizon was now plainly discernible in considerable volume, the mutineers lost no time in getting under full sail and bearing away toward the southwest. Tarzan, an interested spectator of all that had taken place, sat speculating on the strange actions of these peculiar creatures. Men were indeed more foolish and more cruel than the beasts of the jungle. How fortunate was he who lived in peace and security of the great forest! Tarzan wondered what the chest they had buried contained— if they did not want it, why did they not merely throw it into the water? This would have been much easier. Ah, oh, he thought, but they do want it. They have hidden it here, because they intend returning for it later. Tarzan dropped to the ground, and commenced to examine the earth about the excavation. He was looking to see if these creatures had dropped anything which he might like to own. Soon he discovered a spade hidden by the underbrush, which they had laid upon the grave. He seized it, and attempted to use it as he had seen the sailors do. It was awkward work, and hurt his bare feet, but he persevered until he partially uncovered the body. This he dragged from the grave, and laid it to one side. Then he continued digging until he had unearthed the chest. This he also dragged to the side of the corpse. Then he filled the smaller hole below the grave, replaced the body and the earth around and above it, covered it over with underbrush, and returned to the chest. Four sailors had sweated beneath the burden of its weight— Tarzan of the apes picked it up as though it had been an empty packing case, and with the spade slung to his back by a piece of rope, carried it off into the densest part of the jungle. He could not well negotiate the trees with his awkward burden, but he kept to the trails, and so made fairly good time. For several hours, he travelled a little north of east, until he came to an impenetrable wall of matted and tangled vegetation. Then he took to the lower branches, and, in another fifteen minutes, he emerged into the amphitheatre of the apes, where they met in council, or to celebrate the rites of the dum-dum. Near the centre of the clearing, and not far from the drum, or altar, he commenced to dig. This was harder work than turning up the freshly excavated earth at the grave, but Tarzan of the Apes was persevering, and so he kept at his labour until he was rewarded by seeing a hole sufficiently deep to receive the chest and effectually hide it from view. Why had he gone to all this labour without knowing the value of the contents of the chest? 
Tarzan of the Apes had a man's figure and a man's brain, but he was an ape by training and environment. His brain told him that the chest contained something valuable, or the men would not have hidden it. His training had taught him to imitate whatever was new and unusual, and now the natural curiosity, which is as common to men as to apes, prompted him to open the chest and examine its contents. But the heavy lock and massive iron bands baffled his cunning and his immense strength, so that he was compelled to bury the chest without having his curiosity satisfied. By the time Tarzan had hunted his way back to the vicinity of the cabin, feeding as he went, it was quite dark. Within the little building, a light was burning, for Clayton had found an unopened tin of oil which had stood intact for twenty years. A part of the supplies left with the Claytons by Black Michael. The lamps also were still usable, and thus the interior of the cabin appeared as bright as day to the astonished Tarzan. He had often wondered at the exact purpose of the lamps. His reading in the pictures had told him what they were, but he had no idea of how they could be made to produce the wondrous sunlight that some of his pictures had betrayed them as diffusing upon all surrounding objects. As he approached the window nearest the door, he saw that the cabin had been divided into two rooms by a rough partition of boughs and sailcloth. In the front of the room were the three men, the two older deep in argument, while the younger, tilted back against the wall on an improvised stool, was deeply engrossed in reading one of Tarzan's books. Tarzan was not particularly interested in the men, however, so he sought the other window. There was the girl. How beautiful her features! How delicate her snowy skin! She was writing on Tarzan's own table beneath the window. Upon a pile of grasses at the far side of the room lay the negress asleep. For an hour, Tarzan feasted his eyes upon her while she wrote. How he longed to speak to her! But he dared not attempt it, for he was convinced that, like the young man, she would not understand him, and he feared, too, that he might frighten her away. At length she rose, leaving her manuscript upon the table. She went to the bed, upon which had been spread several layers of soft grasses. These she rearranged. Then she loosened the soft mass of golden hair which crowned her head. Like a shimmering waterfall turned to burnished metal by a dying sun, it fell about her oval face. In waving lines below her waist it tumbled. Tarzan was spellbound. Then she extinguished the lamp, and all within the cabin was wrapped in Chimerian darkness. Still, Tarzan watched. Creeping close beneath the window, he waited, listening for a half an hour. At last, he was rewarded by the sounds of the regular breathing within which denotes sleep. Cautiously, he intruded his hand beneath the meshes of the lattice, until his whole arm was within the cabin. Carefully, he felt upon the desk. At last, he grasped the manuscript upon which Jane Porter had been writing— and as cautiously withdrew his arm and hand, holding the precious treasure. Tarzan folded the sheets into a small parcel, which he tucked into the quiver with his arrows. Then he melted away into the jungle, as softly and as noiselessly as a shadow. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Chapter 18 The Jungle Toll Early the following morning, Tarzan awoke, and his first thought of the new day, as the last of yesterday, was of the wonderful writing which lay hidden in his quiver. Hurriedly, he brought it forth, hoping against hope that he could read what the beautiful white girl had written there the preceding evening. At the first glance, he suffered a bitter disappointment. Never before had he so yearned for anything as now he did for the ability to interpret a message from that golden-haired divinity who had come so suddenly and so unexpectedly into his life. What did it matter if the message were not intended for him? It was an expression of her thoughts, and that was sufficient for Tarzan of the Apes. And now, to be baffled by strange, uncouth characters, the like of which he had never seen before, why, they even tipped in the opposite direction from all that he had ever examined, either in printed books or in the difficult script of the few letters he had found. Even the little bugs of the black book were familiar friends, though their arrangement meant nothing to him, but these bugs were new and unheard of. For twenty minutes he pored over them, when suddenly they commenced to take familiar, though distorted shapes. Ah, oh, they were his old friends, but badly crippled. Then he began to make out a word here and a word there. His heart leaped for joy. He could read it, and he would. In another half hour he was progressing rapidly, and, but for an exceptional word now and again, he found a very plain sailing. Here is what he read. West coast of Africa, about ten degrees south latitude. So Mr. Clayton says. February 3rd, question mark, 1909. Dearest Hazel, it seems foolish to write you a letter that you may never see, but I simply must tell somebody of our awful experiences since we sailed from Europe on the ill-fated arrow. If we never return to civilization, as now seems only too likely, this will at least prove a brief record of the events which led up to our final fate, whatever it may be. As you know, we were supposed to have set out upon a scientific expedition to the Congo. Papa had presumed to entertain some wondrous theory of an unthinkably ancient civilization, the remains of which lay buried somewhere in the Congo Valley. But after we were well under sail, the truth came out. It seems that an old bookworm, who had a book in a curio shop in Baltimore, discovered between the leaves of a very old Spanish manuscript a letter written in 1550 detailing the adventures of a crew of mutineers of a Spanish galleon bound from Spain to South America, with a vast treasure of doubloons and pieces of eight, I suppose, for they certainly sound weird and piratey. The writer had been one of the crew, and the letter was to his son, who was, at the very time the letter was written, master of a Spanish merchantman. Many years had elapsed since the events the letter narrated had transpired, and the old man had become a respected citizen of an obscure Spanish town. But the love of gold was still so strong upon him that he risked all to acquaint his son with the means of attaining fabulous wealth for them both. The writer told how, when but a week out from Spain, the crew had mutinied and murdered every officer and man who opposed them, but they had defeated their own ends by this very act, for there was none left competent to navigate a ship at sea. They were blown hither and thither for two months, until sick and dying of scurvy, starvation and thirst, they had been wrecked on a small island. The galleon was washed high upon the beach, where she went to pieces, but not before the survivors, who numbered but ten souls, had rescued one of the great chests of treasure. This they buried well upon the island, and for three years they lived there in constant hope of being rescued. One by one, they sickened and died, until only one man was left, the writer of the letter. The men had built a boat from the wreckage of the galleon, but having no idea where the island was located, they had not dared to put to sea. When all were dead except himself, however, 
The awful loneliness so weighed upon the mind of the sole survivor that he could endure it no longer, and choosing to risk death upon the open sea rather than madness on the lonely isle, he set sail in his little boat after nearly a year of solitude. Fortunately, he sailed due north, and within a week was in the track of the Spanish merchantmen plying between the West Indies and Spain, and was picked up by one of these vessels homeward bound. The story he told was merely one of shipwreck, in which all but a few had perished, the balance, except himself, dying after they had reached the island. He did not mention the mutiny or the chest of buried treasure. The master of the merchantmen assured him that from the position at which they had picked him up, and the prevailing winds of the past week, he could have been on no other island than one of the Cape Verde group, which lie off the west coast of Africa, in about sixteen degrees or seventeen degrees north latitude. His letter described the island minutely, as well as the location of the treasure, and was accompanied by the crudest, funniest little old map you ever saw, with trees and rocks all marked by scrawly X's to show the exact spot where the treasure had been buried. When Papa explained the real nature of the expedition, my heart sank, for I know so well how visionary and impractical the poor dear has always been that I feared that he had again been duped, especially when he told me he had paid a thousand dollars for the letter and map. To add to my distress, I learned that he had borrowed ten thousand dollars more from Robert Candler, and had given him notes for the amount. Mr. Candler had asked for no security, and you know, dearie, what that will mean for me if Papa cannot meet him. Oh, how I detest the man! We all tried to look on the bright side of things, but Mr. Philander and Mr. Clayton, he joined us in London just for the adventure, both kept as sceptical as I. Well, to make a long story short, we found the island and the treasure, a great iron-bound oak chest wrapped in many layers of oiled sailcloth, and as strong and firm as when it had been buried nearly two hundred years ago. It was simply filled with gold coin, and was so heavy that four men bent underneath its weight. The horrid thing seems to bring nothing but murder and misfortune to those who have anything to do with it, for three days after we sailed from the Cape Verde Islands, our own crew mutinied and killed every one of their officers. Oh, it was the most terrifying experience one could imagine. I can't even write of it. They were going to kill us too, but one of them, the leader, named King, would not let them, and so they sailed south along the coast to a lonely spot where they found a good harbour, and here they landed and have left us. They sailed away with the treasure today, but Mr. Clayton says they will meet with a similar fate to the mutineers of the ancient galleon, because King, the only man aboard who knew aught of navigation, was murdered on the beach by one of them the day we landed. I wish you could know, Mr. Clayton. He is the dearest fellow imaginable, and unless I am mistaken, he has fallen very much in love with me. He is the only son of Lord Greystoke, and some day will inherit the title and estates. In addition, he is wealthy in his own right, but the fact that he is going to be an English lord makes me very sad. You know what my sentiments have always been relative to American girls who marry titled foreigners. Oh, if he were only a plain American gentleman! But it isn't his fault, poor fellow, and in everything except birth, he would do credit to my country, and that is the greatest compliment I know how to pay any man.' We have had the most weird experiences since we landed here. Papa and Mr. Philander lost in the jungle and chased by a real lion. Mr. Clayton lost and attacked twice by wild beasts. Esmeralda and I cornered in an old cabin by a perfectly awful man-eating lioness. Oh, it was simply terrifical, as Esmeralda would say. But the strangest part of it is the wonderful creature who rescued us. I have not seen him, but Mr. Clayton and Papa and Mr. Flander have, and they say that he is a perfectly godlike white man, tanned to a dusky brown, with the strength of a wild elephant, the agility of a monkey, and the bravery of a lion. 
He speaks no English, and vanishes as quickly and as mysteriously after he has performed some valorous deed as though he were a disembodied spirit. Then we have another weird neighbor, who printed a beautiful sign in English, and tacked it on the door of his cabin, which we have preempted, warning us to destroy none of his belongings, and signing himself Tarzan of the Apes. We have never seen him, though we think he is about, for one of the sailors, who was going to shoot Mr. Clayton in the back, received a spear in his shoulder from some unseen hand in the jungle. The sailors left us but a meager supply of food, so we have only a single revolver, with but three cartridges left in it. We do not know how we can procure meat, though Mr. Philander says that we can exist indefinitely on the wild fruit and nuts which abound in the jungle. I am very tired now, so I shall go to my funny bed of grasses which Mr. Clayton gathered for me, but will add to this from day to day as things happen. Lovingly, Jane Porter, to Hazel Strong, Baltimore, Maryland. Tarzan sat in a brown study for a long time after he finished reading the letter. It was filled with so many new and wonderful things that his brain was in a whirl as he attempted to digest them all. So, they did not know that he was Tarzan of the Apes. He would tell them. In his tree, he had constructed a rude shelter of leaves and boughs, beneath which, protected from the rain, he had placed a few treasures brought from the cabin. Among these were some pencils. He took one, and beneath Jane Porter's signature, he wrote, I am Tarzan of the Apes. He thought it would be sufficient. Later, he would return the letter to the cabin. In the matter of food, thought Tarzan, they had no need to worry. He would provide. And he did. The next morning, Jane found her missing letter in the exact spot from which it had disappeared two nights before. She was mystified, but when she saw the printed words beneath her signature, she felt a cold, clammy chill run up her spine. She showed the letter, or rather the last sheet with the signature, to Clayton. "'And to think,' she said, "'that uncanny thing was probably watching me all the time I was writing. Who oh, it makes me shudder just to think of it!' "'But he must be friendly,' reassured Clayton. "'For he has returned your letter, nor did he offer to harm you, "'and unless I am mistaken, he has left a very substantial memento of his friendship "'outside the cabin door last night, "'for I just found the carcass of a wild boar there as I came out.' From then on, scarcely a day passed that did not bring its offering of game or other food. Sometimes it was a young deer, again a quantity of strange, cooked food, cassava cakes pilfered from the village of Mubonga, or a boar, or a leopard, and once a lion. Tarzan derived the greatest pleasure of his life in hunting meat for these strangers. It seemed to him that no pleasure on earth could compare with laboring for the welfare and protection of the beautiful white girl. Some day he would venture into the camp in daylight and talk with these people through the medium of the little bugs which were familiar to them and to Tarzan. But he found it difficult to overcome the timidity of the wild thing in the forest, and so day followed day without seeing a fulfillment of his good intentions. The party in the camp, emboldened by familiarity, wandered farther and yet farther into the jungle in search of nuts and fruit. Scarcely a day passed that did not find Professor Porter straying in his preoccupied indifference toward the jaws of death. Mr. Samuel T. Philander, never what one might call robust, was worn to the shadow of a shadow through the ceaseless worry and mental distraction resulting from his Herculean efforts to safeguard the professor. A month passed. Tarzan had finally determined to visit the camp by daylight. It was early afternoon. Clayton had wandered to the point of the harbor's mouth to look for passing vessels. Here he kept a great mass of wood, high-piled, ready to be ignited as a signal should steam or a sail top the far horizon. 
Professor Porter was wandering along the beach south of the cap with Mr. Philander at his elbow, urging him to turn his steps back before the two became again the sport of some savage beast. The others gone, Jane and Esmeralda had wandered into the jungle to gather fruit, and in their search were led farther and farther from the cabin. Tarzan waited in silence before the door of the little house until they should return. His thoughts were of the beautiful white girl. They were always of her now. He wondered if she would fear him, and the thought all but caused him to relinquish his plan. He was rapidly becoming impatient for her return, that he might feast his eyes upon her and be near her, perhaps touch her. The ape-man knew no god, but he was as near to worshipping his divinity as mortal man ever comes to worship. While he waited, he passed the time printing a message to her, whether he intended giving it to her, he himself could not have told, but he took infinite pleasure in seeing his thoughts expressed in print, in which he was not so uncivilized after all. He wrote, I am Tarzan of the Apes. I want you. I am yours. You are mine. We live here together, always in my house. I will bring you the best fruits, the tenderest deer, the finest meats that roam the jungle. I will hunt for you. I am the greatest of the jungle fighters. I will fight for you. I am the mightiest of the jungle fighters. You are Jane Porter. I saw it in your letter. When you see this, you will know that it is for you, and that Tarzan of the Apes loves you. As he stood, straight as a young Indian by the door, waiting after he had finished the message, there came to his keen ears a familiar sound. It was the passing of a great ape through the lower branches of the forest. For an instant, he listened intently, and then from the jungle came the agonized scream of a woman, and Tarzan of the Apes, dropping his first love letter upon the ground, shot like a panther into the forest. Clayton also heard the scream, and Professor Porter and Mr. Philander, and in a few minutes they came panting to the cabin, calling out to each other a volley of excited questions as they approached. A glance within confirmed their worst fears. Jane and Esmeralda were not there. Instantly, Clayton, followed by the two old men, plunged into the jungle, calling the girl's name aloud. For half an hour they stumbled on, until Clayton, by merest chance, came upon the prostrate form of Esmeralda. He stopped beside her, feeling for her pulse, and then listened to her heartbeats. She lived. He shook her. Esmeralda! He shrieked in her ear. Esmeralda! For God's sake! Where is Miss Porter? What has happened? Esmeralda! Slowly, Esmeralda opened her eyes. She saw Clayton. She saw the jungle about her. Oh, Gabriel! She screamed and fainted again. By this time, Professor Porter and Mr. Philander had come up. "'What shall we do, Mr. Clayton?' asked the old professor. "'Where shall we look? God could not have been so cruel as to take my little girl away from me now!' "'We must arouse Esmeralda first, replied Clayton. "'She can tell us what happened. Esmeralda!' He cried again, shaking the black woman roughly by the shoulder. "'Gabriel, I want to die!' cried the poor woman, but with eyes fast closed. "'Let me die, dear Lord. Don't let me see that awful face again!' "'Come, come, Esmeralda!' cried Clayton. "'The Lord isn't here. It's Mr. Clayton. Open your eyes!' Esmeralda did as she was bade. "'Oh, Gabriel, thank the Lord!' she said. "'Where is Miss Porter? What happened?' questioned Clayton. "'Ain't Miss Jane here?' cried Esmeralda, sitting up with wonderful celerity for one of her bulk. "'Oh, Lord! Now I remember. It must have took her away!' And the negress commenced to sob and wail her lamentations. "'What took her away?' cried Professor Porter. 
a great big giant all covered in hair. A gorilla? Esmeralda? questioned Mr. Philander, and the three scarcely breathed as he voiced the horrible thought. I thought it was the devil, but I guess it must have been one of them gorilla fans. Oh, my poor baby, my poor little honey. And again, Esmeralda broke into uncontrollable sobbing. Clayton immediately began to look about for tracks, but he could find nothing, save a confusion of trampled grasses in the close vicinity, and his woodcraft was too meager for the translation of what he did see. All the balance of the day, they sought through the jungle, but as night drew on, they were forced to give up in despair and hopelessness, for they did not even know in what direction the thing had borne Jane. It was long after dark ere they reached the cabin, and a sad and grief-stricken party it was that sat silently in the little structure. Professor Porter finally broke the silence. His tones were no longer those of the erudite pedant, theorizing about the abstract and the unknowable, but those of the man of action, determined, but tinged also by a note of indescribable hopelessness and grief which wrung an answering pang from Clayton's heart. "'I shall lie down now,' said the old man, "'and try to sleep. Early tomorrow, as soon as it is light, I shall take what food I can carry and continue the search until I have found Jane. I will not return without her.' His companions did not reply at once. Each was immersed in his own sorrowful thoughts, and each knew— as did the old professor, with the last word meant, Professor Porter would never return from the jungle. At length, Clayton arose and laid his hand gently upon Professor Porter's bent old shoulder. "'I shall go with you, of course,' he said. "'I... I knew that you would offer, that you would wish to go, Mr. Clayton, but you must not. Jane is beyond human assistance now. What was once my dear little girl?' shall not lie alone and friendless in the awful jungle. The same vines and leaves will cover us, and the same rains beat upon us, and when the spirit of her mother is abroad, it will find us together in death, as it has always found us in life. It is I alone, Yumiko, for she is my daughter, and all that was left on earth for me to love. I shall go with you, said Clayton simply. The old man looked up, regarding the strong, handsome face of William Cecil Clayton intently. Perhaps he read there the love that lay in the heart beneath, the love for his daughter. He had been too preoccupied with his own scholarly thoughts in the past to consider the little occurrences, the chance words, which would have indicated to a more practical man that these young people had been drawn more and more closely to one another. Now they came back to him, one by one. "'As you wish.' he said. "'You may count on me also,' said Mr. Philander. "'No, my dear old friend,' said Professor Porter. "'We may not all go. It would be cruelly wicked to leave poor Esmeralda here alone, and three of us would be no more successful than one. There be enough dead things in this cruel forest as it is. Come, let us try to sleep a little.' Like I said, bit of a cliffhanger today, but uh, we'll be back next week, so stay tuned for that. And remember, if you want the free, unabridged, full recording of the audiobook, all you have to do is go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com slash free, and the link is in the show notes there. So go ahead and check that out, and you can get a free, full edition of the audiobook if you just go there and uh, let me know that you want it. 
Again, really appreciate you telling somebody about the podcast. If you can just share the Another World Audiobooks with somebody that helps the podcast grow. And I uh, just really appreciate your help in spreading the word. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll catch you next time. Don't worry, you aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com